Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. It's time for our Green and Gold History segment. Chris Townsend with you here from the Oakland Athletics as you're listening to A's Cast, powered by the TuneIn app. And uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. What we're going to start doing, we're going to do a top 10 list with David Feldman on every single position on the field. We'll be doing it throughout the season. You know Dave for all the years, bring him on the uh, pregame show. He works for Major League Baseball. He does official scoring for Major League Baseball. He's with the Pac-12 Network. He's with ESPN. But I think probably the most important thing, and the thing that a lot of us have gathered over the years, is that you're basically like an A's historian. If I think of like Steve Vucinich, and I think of Ray Fossey, and I think of Mickey Morabito. I think about the people that have been around and truly know this organization second to none. I'm going to put you up there with them, and that's why I think it's going to be great that we're going to start this. That will run throughout the year, and um, we're going to have a lot of fun. No, Townie, I appreciate it. I mean, I love talking about Oakland A's history. It's been a huge part of my life. And uh, luckily, I've been blessed with a pretty good memory. And I remember most of these players that have worn the green and gold. And uh, I've cheered for most of them. Eh, maybe booed a few of them. But, uh, <laughs> but I love it. I just It's such a – the history, especially here in Oakland, uh, with the greatness that has gone through here, the championships that have been won, I think it's fun to break it down. And, and everyone has an opinion, right? Everybody with players. You have guys who are your favorites, guys who, who, who stick out for a certain reason. And uh, when we go through these lists, and we'll get fans involved as we go along about who the argument is, is who's the top third baseman, which we'll talk about today in Oakland A's history. You know, for you, before we get into this, when you start talking about your love for the team, when did it start? What, what, were, the, what were the years for you that you first remembered your love for the team? You know, it really started back in 1973 uh, when I first started coming to games. My dad brought me to baseball games, and uh, I just took to it right away. I just loved it. I thought... You know, like any little kid, the colors get you right right away. Especially when you come to a Sunday game in Oakland, they'd be wearing their wedding gown white. That was fascinating to me. Uh, other games you'd come up, you wonder if they're wearing gold today or wearing green today. That was part of the fun of it. And then I started to learn the game and learn the players. And it really took hold in 1980 when Billy Martin took over the team. And I learned about baseball by watching Billy Martin-led teams. 81, Bill King, Lon Simmons takes over the radio. Now I'm learning even more, right? How could you not learn listening to those guys? And I just took to it, and I loved it. And, you know, my formative years were Billy Ball. And then right after that, 
Tony La Russa takes over in 86, and you got a championship team. How could you not love the Bash Brothers and Dave Stewart and Dave Henderson and Ricky Henderson? It was just, to me, it's just been an ongoing love affair with me and the A's. And when I think about this team's history, and we're going to get into this top 10, but what's always fascinated me is there's never been a long period of time where they were bad. There's been times where they were bad, but they never stay bad for a long time. And it doesn't matter who's been leading this team. It doesn't matter who's owned the team. The decision makers, who's been the manager, they never have this Pittsburgh Pirate 20-year drought of being under 500. They'll go some bad years, and then all of a sudden, here they're winning again. Yeah, the great thing about the Athletics franchise, and this is all the way going back to 1901 in Philadelphia, they're either one of the best teams in baseball or they're the worst team in baseball. There's very little middle ground, uh, which is fascinating, right? Because the middle ground's terrible. That sucks. It sucks to be this middling team. You're the Mariners for the last 18 years, right? You're not a playoff team, but you're not the worst team. You're just kind of there. You keep thinking there's a little hope. No. To me, it's either you want to be at the bottom where you know you can build up or at the top. That's what the A's have done. If you look at it, if you were to graph the A's from 1901, it's huge peaks, desolate valleys. Neither one of them lasts for very long, but it's always just this joy ride as you go along. Let's start with number 10. Dave Feldman, A's historian. Where are we on the top 10 list? Who is your number 10 third baseman in Oakland A's history? So number 10 is interesting. Actually, you know, really 8, 9, and 10. There's seven third basemen in, in Oakland history that, that, that fill it up, and you go, okay. Well, you can debate the order, but those are the seven. But 8, 9, 10 sort of having a, a personal choice. All right, so guys who didn't make, guys like Jack Hanahan, who were the A's starter for a while from 2007 to 09. Mike Blowers, who was here for a year and a half. Kevin Kuzmanoff. They're not booing, they're Kuzin. Exactly. <laughs> Adam Kennedy, Brett Laurie. Okay, all legitimate guys. But for me, number 10 has a personal favorite. When I we talk about formative years, this is 1980. And this guy's got a unique name. And as a kid, when you're 12 years old and you have a player with a unique name, you're going to latch on to that. So for me, number 10 is Mickey Klutz. Mickey Klutz was an A's third baseman from 79 to 82. And befitting his name, he was injured quite a lot. Your name Klutz, you're going to get hurt. But he had one of the seminal moments for me as a fan. June 13, 1980, the A's have a scheduled twi-night doubleheader versus the Yankees schedule you're a kid a twilight doubleheader was the greatest thing going two games at night starting at 6 p.m how good is this right especially if it's a school night even better because you're going to be up late and the a's got this idea because in 1979 the a's had an early rain out remember 79 the a's drew a total of 306,000 that season they rescheduled the rainout for a Twilight doubleheader against the world champion Yankees, and they drew 19,000. Biggest crowd of the year, 19,000. Think about 19, that. 19,000. But as a kid, and I was at that one as well, you saw people, fans, sitting out where the bullpens are. And you would never see that in an Oakland A's game that year, right? Because the average crowd was 3,000 people, so it was huge. So the A's got the idea, we're going to schedule a Twilight doubleheader, and it worked. 47,000 people show up. For game one, Mickey Klutz is starting at third base because Ron Guidry, the left-hander, Louisiana Lightning, former Cy Young winner, starting. Earlier in the game, Mickey Klutz tries to steal home. He's thrown out by about 15 feet, but he tried it, right? This is Billy Ball. Now it's a tie game. You go to the bottom of the ninth. Crowd is going crazy. Guidry's still in there. Klutz leads off. 
wham, walk-off home run. It wasn't called a walk-off home run then, but it was a game-winning home run. Place is going crazy. And this is what I remember most. My dad sitting next to a another fan, a guy probably in his 20s, but to me as a little kid thought this was just some hippie freak because he'd been drinking beer all night. But Klutz hits the home run. The crowd's going crazy. And there's my dad hugging this guy who he's been sitting next to. And this is just a seminal moment. This is what baseball can do, right? It can bring you together with, with strangers in the ballpark. Mickey Klutz provided that that night. Game two did not go as well. Reggie Jackson hit a grand slam home run off Matt Keogh that if you look, you can still see it. It's still going. Uh, but Klutz ended up, he was, you know, in the 81 playoffs against the Yankees in the ALCS. He was probably the best hitter for the A's. Uh, hit three for seven in that series. Came back in 82 again as a platoon third baseman. And it just did not happen for him. He only won 78 the entire season. Uh, but for that moment, for that night, and a walk-off home run, and my dad hugging a stranger, he's number 10. Your dad and the hippie, we will <laughs> never forget, number 10. Number nine is... So this one's interesting. I'm going to give you some numbers, and you tell me if you'll take this. 140 starts at third base, 309 average, 25 homers, 70 runs batted in, 31 doubles, and an OPS of just over 850 for a season. Would you take that? That's almost an all-star player. That is almost an all-star player. What that was was the combined numbers in 2016 of Danny Valencia and Ryan Healy. That's my number nine, is that combo of Valencia and Healy in 2016. I like the combo deal. Now, it wasn't very good defensively. (laughs) But you know what? I always liked Ryan Healy, and I didn't like the fact that they traded him in division. And Danny Valencia Valencia wasn't known as, let's just say, a a great guy in the clubhouse. But those numbers tell you that's a formidable – if that's one guy – you're looking to keep that guy for a long time. You are, and that was what was interesting about it looking back because two right-handed hitters, it's not a platoon. It was something that Bob Melvin just had to kind of play the hot hand at that position, and obviously Healy played a little first as well that year. Uh, but to get the but, the best out of those two guys and using the matchups to put a season together like that, that's really impressive, and that's that's a tip of the cap to Bob Melvin for getting those guys in a, in a position that they can succeed. Um, yeah, it was tough to see Ryan Healy go. I thought, and I think the Mariners are seeing it now, this guy has, has legitimate pop. He's got a little struggle adjusting, right? He gets it into his head that he's going to swing a certain way and he doesn't adjust to breaking balls. He's not as coachable as they would like him to be. Um, yeah, that's even happening in Seattle. Danny Valencia had some issues uh, off the field getting along with people. Um, but as a combo, those guys, that's number nine. Number eight is... Number eight is another personal favorite. Uh, Part of it is because of what he was able to do in in certain situations. But he was a platoon partner with a guy who's going to be later in our list, starting in 1999, and that's Olmedo Signs. Olmedo in 99, think about this, as the right-handed half of the platoon hit 275 with 11 homers and 41 RBIs. That's pretty good for playing less than half the time. He also had one of those great moments, a Bill King moment, I call it, the walk-off home run against Rob Nen of the Giants. First came back from the All-Star break, a great call from Bill King. Uh, He also had another big home run that I think gets lost in time. But game four of the ALDS in uh, in 2000 against the Yankees, Yankee Stadium, the A's are down in the series 2-1. They're facing Roger Clemens on the road. Almeida, it's a three-run first-inning home run against Roger Clemens. You know, again, righty-righty. This was no platoon. He was in there to do exactly that. 
Uh, Art Howe with a great call, putting him in the lineup. Three-run homer. The A's go on to win that game at 11-1. They bring it back for game five. But Omedo was a real force as a right-handed hitter. Now, once he stopped platooning, because Eric Chavez took over the everyday third base job by this point, he still was a pretty good pinch hitter until his career ended, sadly, with the A's in the 2002 ALDS against the Twins where he blew out his Achilles running out a ground ball to first base. Olmedo came back with the Dodgers for a little bit, was never the same. But Olmedo, a very important piece of that A's early 2000s success, he was a big, big puzzle piece for them in that year, in those years. And I love how you remember players based on Bill King's calls. Oh, they're etched in your memory, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, you know, jaw off him first. He won't score unless it's a homer. And boom, just unbelievable. Bill King, the way that he puts words to the memories those live on forever. I love Roy Steele. John Rawl. <laughs> Number seven is? Number seven is a guy who played third base for a long time for the Oakland A's. He wasn't that great. Let's face it, he was pretty much average. But he played from 1976 to 1983 as the everyday third baseman, and that was Wayne Gross. Wayne Gross was the ninth-round pick in 1973 out of Cal Poly Pomona. Came up in 76. He was a rookie in 1977 and made the All-Star team. Probably his best season. He had 23 home runs that year. Uh, again, All-Star. 281 average in 1980. He, once Billy took over, he was one of those slow guys home. And then, again, another personal moment. Doubleheader against the White Sox in 1980. Uh, I'm sitting in the, in the crowd. I had a friend of mine, best friend, who was not a Wayne Gross fan. All right. So the A's are trailing by three, going to the bottom of the 10th. Two outs. Dwayne Murphy, it's a two-run homer. Now the A's are down by one. Wayne Gross comes up. And my friend, sitting, we were sitting about third row behind the A's bullpen, yells out, Gross, Gross, if you hit a home run, I will never boo you again. Next pitch. Gone. <laughs> I like to credit my friend for getting Wayne Gross. And he never booed him again. Uh, the A's would have gone to lose that game in the second game of the doubleheader. Saved Tony Lewis's job. He was the manager of the White Sox at the time. But another story. So Wayne played a long time. Again, not the greatest player, but he's number seven on the list. Number six. Number six is Scott Brocious. Right. Now, Scott Brocious was a member of the A's from 91 to 97. Uh, he was pretty much the everyday third baseman in 96 and 97. He was a jack-of-all-trades before that, but played a lot of third. Uh, A's 20th-round pick in 87. He was a really good player, especially in 96. Uh, he had 304 with 22 home runs and 71 RBIs. And this is a solid player. 97, he got off to a slow start. And when I say a slow start, he was hitting below 200. And we've seen guys get off to slow starts before, but they're able to, to come back and still have a nice season. Something happened that year with Brocious where he was just chasing his average the entire time. He would come up to the plate and he would see his batting average on the scoreboard at 197 and just sort of, that's what he's struggling. All he wanted was a hit. He wasn't taking good at bats because he was chasing his average. And he ended up hitting 203 that season with only 11 homers and 41 RBIs. Disappointing for sure. But here's where it gets interesting. The A's traded Scott Brocious in the offseason. And the Scott Brocious trade tree was a success story every step of the way. After the 2007 season, they trade him to the Yankees in return for Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers has a fantastic 1998 for the A's. 99, he's still a very solid pitcher. The A's were able to trade him in July to the Mets in exchange for Terrence Long. Terrence Long becomes your everyday center fielder and a left fielder at one point for division-winning teams. 
you know, through 2000, 2003. It's pretty good. Now, at the end of 2003, the A's make another trade. They trade Terrence Long, along with Ramon Hernandez, to the Padres for Mark Kotze. And Mark Kotze becomes your starting center fielder on an AL West Division 2016. Again, this is just success all the way through this trade tree. Finally, the A's trade uh, Mark Kotze to the Braves in 2008. They return Joey Devine. And Joey Devine is one of those A's relievers that might get lost to history. But if you look at his 2008 season, 42 games, 45 and two-thirds innings, only three earned runs. 0.59 ERA. 49 Ks in those four. I mean, just unbelievable. Until Blake Trinan, I mean, it was Dennis Eckersley, Joey Devine, Blake Trinan. These are the three greatest reliever seasons in Oakland history. So Scott Brocious, who was a, a good player for the A's, but what he brought all along the way, nothing but success. And Devine, one of the guys that never made it back from Tommy John surgery, which was kind of sad because we were expecting him. And for Brocious, he ends up being the World Series MVP in 1998, for which I, I think is the best baseball team that we've modern day baseball team that we've ever seen in the 98 Yankees. Yeah, he wins 3 world championships with the Yankees. 98, 99, 2000 gets the MVP and we used to have a joke uh, former A's broadcaster Greg Papa because we even joked about him when he got traded to the Yankees that Scott Brocious is going to win the World Series MVP. He's going to open up a bar in Manhattan. He's going to call it Bros. <laughs> I don't know if he ever opened the bar, but he definitely got the MVP. He's definitely not paying for drinks. All right, number 5 Number five is number five with a bullet, and that's Matt Chapman. And now I know it's it's still early in this guy's career, right? Only one full season. He's in his second full season now. But is there any doubt that this guy is as good as advertised? You know, first-round pick, 25th overall, Cal State Fullerton, comes up in 2017, shows leadership ability right away. The numbers were fine. The glove was fantastic. We all knew about that. But there was something else about him. There was this aura of a leader around him. And he he wasn't taking any gruff. He showed it right away that he was going to be the, the head of this team. And then last year, he puts it all together with a fantastic, really, first season. right? If he, if he had not a, got rid of his rookie qualification the year before, he would definitely have been in that argument for rookie of the year next to Otani. 278, 24 homers, seventh in the MVP. Seventh. And a lot of that's due to his defense. Have you ever seen a guy impact a game defensively like Matt Chapman does every night. Yeah, his defensive run saves at 29. No one was even close. No one's even close. And the thing about him, too, if you watch him play, he plays a deep third base. Because his arm is so good and such a cannon, he's a he has the ability to play deeper. He can cut off the angles better that way and still make the throw. I wish we could do like an overlay in the television world where you show other third basemen where they position themselves compared to Matt Chapman. And you'll see Chapman's about 10 feet further back than any other third baseman. So even if you want to bring the infield in, he still plays back. Watch for this because he knows he can still throw a guy at the plate because of his cannon. It's it's such a great weapon. And I just I'm excited to watch him play game after game, year after year, because he's number five right now. Don't be surprised by the end of his career if he's in the top three. Number four. Number four is the guy who I think a lot of people thought played a lot longer than he did here, and that's Josh Donaldson. Josh Donaldson, who was fantastic in 2013, finished fourth in the MVP. Uh, 2014, he finished eighth in the MVP. I mean, just unworld player. But people think, oh, he was here for, for four or five years. He came up as the everyday third baseman in August of 2012. So he only played two years and two months as your everyday third baseman for the Oakland A's. Before that, in 2012, remember, he came up, he was still a catcher. 
He still even caught some games in 2012. Couldn't hit at all. Was hitting under 100 for a while. He first came up like in 10 and in caught 10. two games against the Blue Jays at the Sky Dome. He did. He was, you know, he got he was in the Rich Harden trade, which again a trade that actually worked out well eventually uh, with Donaldson. But he took off in 2012 when he finally took over as the everyday third baseman. The A's went 32 and 15. He himself hit 290, 26 RBIs, and he just everything. And then 213, 2014. Huge numbers, huge run production, and really good defense. Not Chapman, but very close to it. I mean, we'll never forget him diving over the tarp in left field. And the impact he had on those championship, division championship and wildcard teams, it's just, you, you can't even put a figure on it because he was so important to the growth of those teams and what he did on the field. It's amazing he was only here for two years and two months as an everyday third baseman. Number three. Number three. So this is where it gets interesting. The top three. I think everyone can pretty much agree on who the top three are. It's what order do you want to put them in? And for me, number three is Carney Lansford. And Carney was the everyday third baseman from 83 to 92, except for 1991. So in the off season, he uh, had a little s- uh, snowmobile accident, mm-hmm. tore up his knee. He was only able to play about five games that year. Uh, but otherwise, this was part of these championship A's teams. He was the pseudo captain. They didn't have an official captain for him, but people call him Captain Carney. Uh, he was a gritty. He batted second or he batted fifth. Um, every day out there, played almost every day. You know, you look at his 88 All-Star, 89 in the ALCS, he had 455. One of the biggest things he did was off the field after the A's won the World Series in, eight, in 1989. The A's come to spring training and he hands out t-shirts. What Carney did is he studied the 49ers and how they were able to be a successful team year after year. And he saw there was a common thread. So he had t-shirts made out that says, contentment stinks, stay focused. And all the players wore them. And I even had one too. I was a fan. They ended up selling them because, you know, you sell your market anything. But contentment stinks. And what he found out was teams that couldn't be successful year after year, they got, they got happy. Oh, we already won. We're fine. And they didn't put the focus. They didn't get that laser-sharp focus trying to win again. And Carney would have had none of that. It was all about focus and winning. In 1990, they went 103 games. And a lot of that's due to Carney. He missed the 91 season, like we said. He comes back in 92. And this is a 92 team that was injury-ravaged. But with Carney leading the way and playing every day, even on a bad knee, the A's still won the AL West. And a lot of that, again, is Carney's drive and what he was able to do. Number two. Number two is a six-time gold glover, fan favorite, a guy who put up numbers hadn't seen before, 32 homers, 114 RBIs. Next year, 34 homers, 109 RBIs. Next year, 29. I mean, this is just power and production and the gold gloves. This is Eric Chavez. Eric Chavez, first-round pick in 1996 out of Mount Carmel High School. You might know that high school because there's another famous Oakland athletic who went there, and that'd be Billy Bean. This guy... I mean, we love Eric Chavez. And he was the guy who got the long-term contract. Right? He was one of the few guys. He, he had the biggest, until Eric, um, Chris Davis this year, he had the biggest one-year contract. Uh, that's how much he was, he was loved here. The sad thing about Eric Chavez and why he's not number one is he couldn't stay healthy after that 2006 season. He just couldn't stay on the field. Uh, 2007, he only played 90 games. 2008, 23 games. 2009, eight games. 2010, 33 games. Just imagine if he was able to stay healthy 
the numbers that he would have put up. You're talking about a Hall of Fame third baseman. But he wasn't able to do it. And that, that to me, is the sadness, is we never got to see Eric Chavez really reach the, the total peak of his abilities due to injuries. But what we did see, especially in the early 2000s, was a top, top third baseman. He actually rebounded after all of that and became a very good part-time player, whether it was the D-backs or the Yankees. That was good to see for him. It was. It was fun to see him play for the Yankees and the and, and the Diamondbacks. And Yusmero Batit has a has a fond memory, or not so fond memory, of Eric Chavez. Uh, broke up a perfect game. Petit was throwing with the Giants with two outs in the ninth inning with a sinking liner to right field. So Eric Chavez always in the mind of Yusmero Batit. And number one, the number one. Oakland A's third baseman, according to A's historian Dave Feldman, is Captain Sal, Sal Mando. And as for me, growing up as a kid, watching Sal, and the thing you knew about him is he never was a high batting average guy, right? 258 average as a member of the Oakland A's, but all he did was drive in runs and get clutch hits. You know, the A's won a lot of games in the 70s with their pitching. They'd win games 2-1, to 3-2. to two. And you look at those box scores, and it was always Sal Bando who drove in the big runs. And so we did a little thing looking it up using the, the new stat war, right? So we look at the years from 68 to 76 when Sal Bando was the A's everyday third baseman. And when I mean everyday third baseman, I mean, he played 162 games three times, over 150 games five times. I mean, this is everyday third baseman. But you look at the war leaders for those years. Number one, Joe Morgan, Hall of Fame. Number two, Johnny Bench, Hall of Fame. Number three, Reggie Jackson, Hall of Fame. Number four, Pete Rose, Hall of Fame quality player. Then Sal Bando. Sal Bando, higher war than Carl Yastrzemski, Rod Carew, Willie Stargell, Hank Aaron. And we talked about this yesterday. Because in the 70s and the 80s, everybody looked at batting average. They didn't really look at the other numbers. So I don't think Sal ever got the do that he earned as one of the greatest players of his era and probably a Hall of Fame player. Third base is, is so underrepresented in the Hall of Fame. There are, there are fewer third basemen than any position. Sal Bando, again, you look at that list and look at his numbers and look at his consistency, this guy should have been a Hall of Famer. What was his career war? His career war, I think it ended up being over 70, but I'd have to look to be sure, because I did when I did this, I didn't look at his Milwaukee years, and he had some good years in Milwaukee after he left the A's, and actually in '81 when they won the the division, the AL East, he had, he was a big part of that. But this is a guy, again, the everydayness of a third baseman like Sal Banda, who could drive in every important run. I think he gets overlooked in the history books. Well, because we're now looking at. 60 and above, you start looking at, is this a Hall of Fame player if you're a 60 war or above? And back in those days, basically what you did in the postseason was icing on the cake. Nowadays, like if you put Sal Bando through it now, he probably gets in because now we account more for what you do in the postseason. My God, look at how many times he was in the postseason, plus winning three straight World Series. Three straight World Series, big plays. You look in the 75 ALCS when the A's got swept by the Red Sox, Sal had a huge series, and Ray Fossey tells you stories. Sal would probably have three or four home runs, but he kept banging them off the green monster at Fenway. But he was on every pitch. He was a monster, and I think other teams respected him so much, too. And then the Captain Sal part. I mean, he was the captain of that team. When there were problems with Charlie Finley, and there was many problems with Charlie Finley, as we all know, Sal was the one who would take it up with either Charlie himself or the manager, whatever it took. 
Sal took command of it. And he took ownership of that team. Uh, you had huge personalities, right, with Reggie and Raleigh Fingers, and we we know the list. But Sal was a linchpin for that whole squad, and just he's the number one third baseman in Oakland history. It's kind of sad, but I feel like these guys are finally getting their due, but it took a long time for that team to really finally get their due as we're honoring now. We've been honoring them the past couple of years. They do. They get lost to history, and I think, you you know, Ken Burns did that great uh, documentary on baseball back in 94, right? And the whole A's sequence in the 70s was like a minute, a minute and a half, and we're talking about the Reds and their, and their Yankees and the teams of the 70s. Like, no, no, no. The A's won three straight World Series. They won five straight division titles. This team needs more attention on it, how great they were. And I know the players talk about it all the time. If free agency didn't happen, if Charlie wasn't a cheap stake, they could have won more and more. And it's probably true. We'll never know. But what they did is enough. No other team beside the Yankees have ever won three in a row. The Oakland A's won three World Series in a row. And I, I think that gets lost in time. Great job. We're going to break them all down. Every single position. Top 10. I love it, County. I love it. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 